what are the skills that are required moving forward? What are the skills that we need to survive, but also thrive in this now, hopefully post-pandemic phase? And I think that those soft skills are where it's at. Leadership is about engaging, communicating, supporting, making uh, connections with other people and being resilient, being able to collaborate. Those, those, those key skills are now going to really come to the fore. And I think what we know from neuroscience, psychology, behavioral science, we can start putting some, some proper processes into place of how we can develop that and, and, and build on those, on those skills. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces, diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Hello and welcome to the HR L&D podcast. Today I'm joined by Simon Ashton, Head of Learning and Development at Phoenix Leaders. Now Simon is a business psychologist, trainer and certified coach with over 15 years experience in learning and development. At Phoenix Leaders, Simon works with clients across a broad range of sectors to solve their L&D issues by applying the most up-to-date research from the fields of neuroscience, something we're going to find out an awful lot more about today, psychology, anthropology and social sciences. With both an academic and professional background in behavioural sciences, Simon helps organisations to gain a better understanding of how people act, think and feel to achieve tangible business outcomes. And I'm really excited to welcome him to the HLND podcast today. He's got a wealth of knowledge in the world of neuroscience and in particular how it can help HR, payroll and learning and development professionals. Now, prior to joining Phoenix Leaders, Simon headed up his own L&D consultancy and he has previously held a number of roles in the executive search field. He also holds an MSc in business psychology and is accredited by the British Psychological Society as a psychometric assessment practitioner. So sit back, relax and enjoy this podcast all about how neuroscience can help us all become better leaders for the future. Enjoy. I spent uh, a vast majority of my career working within the recruitment sector and search and selection, probably 15 years supporting retail, hospitality, sales, service industries, and then um, was always fascinated with the human behavior and why do people make the decisions they make, particularly if you're going to move careers, if you're joining an organization, what, are the, what, what motivates you to make that move? And, then, and so diverted into um, into study and and went to complete a master's in business psychology and that just exploded my my mind even further into actually I just want to get into this so much deeper um, and and has now gravitated more towards learning and development training um, learning transfer and so where I am currently uh, Phoenix leaders a training provider training consultancy where as, as Nick already said, we, we help leaders, managers, predominantly within the, the softer skills, human skills, 21st century skills. Um, but it's very much about using evidence-based uh, psychology, neuroscience, 
behavioral science to make sure that we're um, maybe dispelling some of the myths that are out there in regards to what is best practice and how organizations are engaging with their, their members, their teams, their, how they're helping them develop, how we're motivating them and using the, the, the research from psychology, neuroscience, et cetera, to maybe, to maybe present a, a different way of doing that and getting and improving and helping organizations perform better. So um, yeah, that's where I am currently. Super, fantastic. I'm, I'm desperate to get into the, the question of neuroscience and in particular how we can use that to gain a deeper understanding of, of how we can improve our leadership skills. But I wonder if you would, if you could just position what neuroscience is for the listening group. And for some, it might be obvious, for some, it may not be, but also how it relates to psychology and just want to give us a bit of um, a platform, if you like, to, 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 to start the discussion by just defining what those terms mean in a little bit more context before we jump into the uh, the deeper stuff, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for me, uh, for neuroscience is the, the study, the research into the brain and the nervous system. And therefore, that impacts not just in terms of cognitive, emotional process, but also physiological process. How does the brain then interact with the, the body as a whole? And it, and it is very much a system. So neuroscience considers the brain and the nervous system, whereas psychology is around the theory of mind, let's say, and understanding actually how do we think, how do we, how do we engage with the world, where does personality fit into that where do we where does motivation fit into that so two very big subject matters two very big areas of research and um i think where psychology has has very much uh, been embedded within leadership development for a number of years neuroscience is relatively new as a field of study and a field of research i am not a neuroscientist i am a, a practitioner of neuroscience research but i think it 20 years old in terms of neuroscience that is new that is young in comparison to psychology and therefore what we're finding and what's being presented in the in the fields of neuroscience is fascinating how it can be applied i think what we've got to be careful of as well though is that one piece of research doesn't mean therefore that that is that is taken as granted and that is a given but I must say some of the, the the information around neuroscience particularly around threat and reward how the brain responds to uh, perceived threat in terms of how do we then turn into survival mode and how do we become mo most productive and best productive how does the brain uh, take stimuli and how does it how does it then how do we interact with our environment and other people i think that's shining a light on on things that maybe we didn't i haven't seen before fantastic i think that's given us a really good overview and as, and it's worth mentioning if you heard my introduction as well of course you're coming from the learning and development side of this and you have had your own lnd consultancy you're very much an hr and lnd practitioner with uh, with experience and a real interest in the research into neuroscience uh, which is, is something we're going to delve into a little bit more deeper now and i guess my first question would be then how can how can we begin to gain a deeper understanding of emotional responses to help improve our, our leadership skills we know emotion impacts every single thing that we do we are um i think we've for many years we've always looked at we leave emotions at at home or outside of the workplace and that we be, we believe that the human being is a very logical very analytical uh very methodical planner thinker doer but actually what we've recognized through the research and over time is that emotions sit in every single aspect of where of where we're at. And I think 
for me, one of the, the key factors where we're at currently is I think emotional intelligence, as we know, we're still in, in, in the pandemic. We're starting to move to a different phase right now. But I believe that words and, and phrases and terms such as emotional intelligence are being, being heard, being talked about, being engaged with so much more. But I think that also emotional response, we're under a lot of pressure. Everyone's under a huge amount of stress right now, um, be that still balancing uh, childcare and working environments, still being apart from loved ones. We've still got the budget constraints, the managing of budgets. We've still got sales targets to achieve. We've still got difficult decisions to make. And therefore, how do we, how do we use and how do we engage with our emotions to be able to, to, to manage this situation is, is massively important. So I think we, we need to turn away from the fact that we're not just robots who can be logical and, and methodical and analytical. We are human beings who are overtaken and maybe react to our emotional responses every minute of every day. And the more that we can get the neuroscience and open neuroscience into that, I think the better for leaders and managers because I'm, we're in a knowledge age, and I think the more knowledge we can consume about how we think, feel, behave, act is massively important. Sure. And are there, are there tips or are there triggers we should look out for to help us gain a better understanding if we are starting to follow an emotional response that perhaps isn't going to benefit us in the way that, that it could? Are there things that we should be more inwardly aware of? So self-awareness is a starting point within terms of emotional response and, and emotional intelligence, understanding what triggers us at certain situations. What, what is it? Which colleagues? Which, um, which pieces of work? What's, what's the deadline around? So understanding actually what is it that, that makes me feel, and, and, and I think makes me feel, I think is, is a really good point to make, is that we feel it physiologically. You feel a tense jaw. You feel a, 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 a tense shoulder. You feel yourself probably breathing uh, more shallowly than than you would do normally we there's lots of of physiological signs when you know you're under pressure and you're having an emotional response but we forget as human beings that that those are happening and we sort of block them out so one of the key factors one of the first things that i advise anybody to do is is getting a grip of the physiological response and that would a natural normal thing is breathing we do that all the time we breathe every minute of every every day but I think that we forget that if we're doing shallow breathing, we're not getting enough oxygen to our more uh, logical and thinking parts of the brain. So just taking that step, just to engage with, first of all, I'm sensing this trigger, I'm sensing the, the, the physiological response, and then getting that physical response under control by engaging some slower, deeper breathing. It sounds really basic, but it works. It works in mindfulness techniques. Um, it works in meditation. That's what it's all in, in yoga. That's what they're all based in. But I think that we sometimes think that if we can give ourselves a bit of clarity and that moment of to respond rather than react, um, I think, yeah, that's that's my first tip. Oh, excellent. Perfect. Now, I know at the minute, one of the hot topics, particularly during this pan global pandemic, and it's it's been very difficult for managers to adjust and for leaders to adjust to suddenly managing remote workforces. It's put strains on trying to manage existing workflows whilst leading teams. There's a, been a big element of trust that's been required to ensure people are working for, you know, in their home offices and bedrooms and sheds, wherever it might be, whereas before you were able to sort of manage them and, and be able to observe them 
more easily, I guess, in an office-based environment. So bearing in mind your knowledge and understanding that you have of neuroscience, how can we, going forward, both now whilst we're still in this pandemic, but also post-pandemic, how can we use your understanding of neuroscience to improve employee engagement and productivity for the future? So, um, so engagement and motivation are very closely linked. And I think that now more than ever, um, and I, a scenario that, um, that I've heard before in the past is we need to understand which of our people, first of all, do we, do we want to, to, uh, to support and engage and motivate in our organizations? But actually, do we actually know what motivates our, our people? What, what are we having the dialogue, the, the conversations to be able to turn around and say, yes, I understand your pressures. I understand your challenges right now. I understand actually, because motivation from a psychological perspective, I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners have, have maybe read um, Daniel Pink's Drive. But there's also uh, the work that, that's built off the back of that by DC and Ryan around the autonomy, belonging and competence. Um, and those, those factors that we are motivated and are driven by different situations at different times. And motivation is a massive topic. But I think if we can get into the bones of each of our team members and really understand, empathize, but understand what, what drives my, uh, my colleague and, and my subordinate the person in my team on is it is it automated do they need freedom do they need control do they need to be able to make their own choices do they do they miss the team scenario do they miss the belonging of the group the togetherness the connections that are made when we are face to face and more so when we're when we're not face to face actually some people feel more belonging in this virtual space that we're in this this sort of expanded space where we are but a lot of people are missing that connection that belonging that feel of connectivity and also and the next thing, do I have the skills? Do I feel I have the skills to be able to, to deliver what I am asked to deliver on a day-to-day basis? Um, am, I, am I competent enough? Am I, am, am I, and that's not just about skills, but that's about what's my journey in terms of learning in general? What am I, where am I at? Because we know that in terms of if we're looking generationally, there aren't enough positions. We can't, if you're viewing your progression up, a, up a, an organizational ladder just by promotions, then you're going to be disappointed because there aren't enough positions to attach to allow people to jump up a layer. But what we are looking at now in terms of more uh, millennial uh, Gen Y, I think is about collecting skills, collecting capability, collecting uh, uh, experiences to be able to then help us tackle our career longer term. And then the other big thing that we've missed out is purpose, the meaning. Why, am I, why do I come to this role? Why do I come to this, this organization? Why do I come to this this job, what drives me? So if leaders can get into that, those, those key areas, first of all, understand what makes this person tick, what makes this person uh, move and, and move to, towards rather than moving away, I think that's a really uh, key starting point. But a lot, a lot of individuals are a bit worried about having that conversation because they might uncover things that they don't really want to deal with or tackle. Sure. And you also have to admit to yourself that you may be lacking some skills, and that can be difficult from, a, from an ego perspective. And just you know, not, not all of us want to admit that we have a skill shortage somewhere, and you have to sort of then look inward to find those sometimes. But interestingly, some of the things you were talking about there, and talking about you know the, Gen Y and and the way that we it, the employee experience has changed. So with that in mind, obviously we've moved a long way away, in my view, from how we, people used to lead teams 
in the past. Um, it was probably a little bit more, you mentioned the, the book Drive, which I read some time ago, but I know he talks a lot about the old methods of motivation between carrot and stick in that book and how we've moved forward. How have you seen leadership change um, over you know, since you've been studying the subject, I guess? And, and what, how would you describe the, the role of the modern leader, if, if that's the right term? So I am a big advocate of servant leadership, which therefore is putting the, the team the people, the people who are your followers at the focal point. You as a leader are not there to be the, the hero, the individual that comes in and saves the day. You're there to support, facilitate, and keyword coach the individuals to be able to deliver what they're, what they're coming to work to deliver. So I think the command and control, the tell and do, Unfortunately, I think it's still prevalent within organizations, not as much as where we have been, but I think it's still there because you get it. People under pressure, your livelihood, your job, your promotion, your bonus, whatever that's attached to this, then the people that are there to under your control um, dictate whether you achieve what you want to achieve as well. So people when under pressure and turn into this threat response in the brain rather than a toward response and the threat response is under under pressure makes us a bit more narrow-minded a little bit closed off to creative ideas we tend to then jump on and micromanage so i think where we're looking at that we have transferred to more of a coaching leadership role i very much believe that but again the organization's culture the, the pressures that an individual faces how often do they flip back to the tell and do and command and control? And culturally, in different countries, in different parts of the world, that can differ as well because that's the way that the organisation have done it forever or that's their style. But I think that for me, servant leadership, that putting your people at the heart of, of what you do, that you come to make sure that, that they are supported, that you're there to guide them, that you're not giving them the answers. I was given some great advice probably most most individuals in most organizations in terms of leaders do the job of the person below them they feel that their life is is you are you're under pressure to be able to deliver and justify your own existence and the results of your team and therefore we tend to go down a level rather than up a level or maintain at our level so we're always trying to answer the problems solve the problems deliver the answers to the people below us and therefore, productivity is, is massively reduced because that person's not being paid for what they're actually trying to do. They're being paid for the job below them. I'm not sure if you'd agree, but I, I think that's, that's obvious at times. I'm definitely in your camp. I think um, I'm going to be a devil's advocate. I, I agree with you, by the way. I think everything you've said is, is exactly the way that I would like to see myself as a leader and, and the way I think we need to lead going forward. I think um, the way that people lead has changed significantly. Certainly since I've been in recruitment over the last 20 years, I've seen a, a fundamental shift in the way that we engage our employees and the way that I've seen successful leaders rise to the top because of the way that they engage their employees. And I do think that they go hand in hand with promotion. The, way the, the reasons people get promoted is because of the way that they're leading the, the people below them um, in, in the hierarchical structure uh, sense of things. However, to play devil's advocate slightly, can we go too far? one way and I'll give an example um, I'm a huge football fan so I follow the Premier League and there used to be a relationship within my lifetime where the management uh, was in charge and you know you signed a contract with a, with a, with a club for example and you did you, you served that contract and that was what happened whereas now it's the amount of money in the game may, may be a reason for this but also you find the players have a lot more control now than the managers and actually if the players aren't happy with something and in this instance you can reference this as being the employee if you like 
they're able to actually influence change and cause management um, departures sometimes because they're not happy. And I think at the minute we're in a culture where certainly brands are really focused on at, uh, retaining employees rather than attracting them. And that's been a shift in the recruitment space, which I know you, you've done recruitment as well, so you, you've probably seen that. Where now brands are really looking to engage employees, retain top talent, keep them happy, try and uh, reduce attrition, and it's less about less about attraction. So with that in mind, can we go too far one in one direction where it becomes too much about the employee at the risk of at the risk of leadership, really, at the risk of that kind of structure? Yeah, I think um, I think, and I think it was one of your previous guests. Um, was it uh, Richard Watkins talking about collaboration? Where he that, that I think a leader will automatically fall, and a leader will will come to the fore anyway. And I don't think we can have these super flat structures where everybody has a say. But I think it's about using the using the information to be able to allow people to have a voice. I think people want to be directed at times. They want to be able to follow somebody and they want to be at times told what to do. I don't think too much choice. There's that, the uh, experiment, there's a bit of research around jams. I'm not sure if you heard of it, but if um, they did a, an experiment where they a group of people had a choice of six jams to go for, or they had a choice of twenty-four jams to go for, and actually, in the what we what we found is that the confusion of having too many choices, too much control, too much, too many options, therefore makes it very difficult to make a decision. After all, so I do believe that there needs to be direction. Of course, there is. I don't think everyone can completely be self-led and 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 these self-led teams. But I do. I, I believe there's a there is a harmony. There is a halfway house, absolutely, where we can make sure that the leader still is driving the strategic, the objective, the vision, the goal. But I do believe that the, the teams can have a, a greater say if a if a leader is aware of again what triggers their motivation, what triggers best practice from from certainly from neuroscience anyway. Sure, I think that plays in. I know that certainly empathy, I think, is probably more important now than it was in as a leader in terms of leadership quality in the past. Certainly, from my perspective, I'd like to. That's sort of one emotion that I I connect with as as I think as being an important one for, for leadership. Obviously, I, I know you'll you'll know a lot more, and I don't know how whether we should or shouldn't be labelling emotions. But um, what's your view then? I know that so so. Give some context to this. My my mum actually is a is a doctor in baby development studies, so she does a lot of studies of the brain. I know that it's the amygdala that is the part of the brain that's associated with anxiety and avoidance behaviour. What's your view as an expert in terms of how we you know should we be labelling emotions? Should should we be, you know how does the amygdala respond from a leadership context that would be useful for leaders listening to this to to, to get a better understanding of? Yeah, so um, I think. A, a great book um, that I would recommend people to, to pick up is The Chimp Paradox by um, Steve Peters, Professor Steve Peters. And he talks about simplifies neuroscience in regards to how the brain is structured. So we've got the chimp, which is the, the limbic system, which includes the amygdala and, 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 the, and that area that has the hypothalamus. And, and I'm, I won't go into too much detail, but in, in there's a that key region that looks after the the emotional response, the first thing that tends to to trigger uh, or respond to the stimuli that we see. Then the other side of it is the is the human part of the brain, which is that thinking part. And I think as it, that that first bit of information knowledge for me, 
I mean, I know obviously the, the, the depth of it, but actually for somebody who's coming to new to neuroscience and understanding the emotional response, the chimp, as is described, is that is that first thing that, that either reacts or responds, reacts to negatively and tends to be there to defend that, that individual survive and make that person survive. And I think by understanding that that, that part of the brain so you can, yes, label emotions, anger, sadness, frustration. I think that's, that's fantastic. But actually going a bit deeper and actually labeling, okay, this is this part of the brain that's, that's doing, and it's there because it's protecting me and it's looking after me and it's, it's, made, it's wanting me to survive. But actually is, is what I'm reacting to actually what I should be reacting to. And so we need to then get the thinking part, the more logical part of the brain into gear, which where the breathing comes in and at the starting of our conversation but it's it's understanding that there is a lot going on in our in our human brain and that just talking about the amygdala or just talking about single emotions absolutely helps but i think we need to be aware okay i'm feeling this i'm un, i'm understanding i'm but most of the time people don't recognize what's going on most of the time you've actually reacted you've shouted at responded to sent back that email in frustration to a, a response that you feel has been overly curt or or aggressive and that's your chimp responding to that that message that email um but actually what we need to do very quickly is step back get a bit of objectivity get that thinking log prefrontal cortex logical part on the go so we can look at that, that email from a distance and go actually there's nothing in that there is nothing in that there's no emotive content in there that i need to think about or, or engage with actually they're just asking for this information but it's our chimp that's reacting to Oh, they think I'm not very good at this, or they're putting me under pressure because I need to do. So we start creating this sort of internal dialogue. So emotion, labeling emotions is great. Yes, I'm feeling angry, and it's known to help dissipate that emotional response. But I think we can go a bit bigger than that and actually recognize there is the, the brain is there to protect in the first instance, but is it protecting me for the right reasons, the right things? Absolutely love that. I think uh, I, I can certainly... Um think of a few examples where my chimp in this context has jumped in particularly with emails because you know we can't read tone in an email in, in, in well we can interpret tone but our brain will will create well my brain certainly will create a response to an email that's come in but i will add the tone to the words that i'm reading and quite often the tone i give to those words will be the incorrect tone and this is and usually it's this happens from when it's when I think it's negative. If someone's challenging me when I think it's unfair, suddenly I've added a voice to that message over to me, and I've created this this thing in my head that probably was sent in complete innocence, but I read it differently, I've interpreted it differently, and that you know it, it's funny how you channel so many different emotions in you when you read something often incorrectly because you've added that tone to it. And I guess that kind of links to your breathing. Thing that you mentioned there because you know I'm a big believer on if I want to respond to an email that I've had that response to I tend to sleep on it which I guess is another way of breathing and taking a bit of a pause and I will very rarely want to write the same response I wanted to write the following day but I've had time to sleep on it think on it and reflect and come back the following day I always tend to read it differently so is that kind of an example of what you were referring to that's great it's giving yourself space ultimately to be able to think more logically rather than i mean let's be honest the brain focuses on negative five times more than it focuses on positive so the fact the brain is constantly looking out for what we believe to be a very negative environment or things are out to get us a lot and that's that's 
pretty much um, seem to be solid in, in the research. So if we put that into perspective, we're constantly looking for things that are going to hurt us or affect us psychologically, physically. And actually what we need to recognize is if the brain is on, is constantly doing that, we need to counter that by trying to, to get into a, a more objective and positive place to be able to then look at things and engage. Because as soon as we meet new people, we're constantly on the lookout to see, can I trust you? Are you a friend or are you a foe? Without even doing anything, are you with me or against me? We're viewing people as, a, as are they a threat? And, and I think that that can be anything, new assignment, new project. If you're looking at it from a towards perspective, this is what I'm going to learn. That This is a great new project. I'm going to learn this. We're going to meet new people. I'm going to build new relationships. It could potentially help with my career. Or most of the time people are going, but if I get it wrong, it's going to affect my career. If, I, if it doesn't go right, I'm going to affect some relationships. My boss is going to think less of me. We tend to, as, as humans, go on the negative side. So just by understanding that as a piece of information, we can then start thinking everything that I'm delivering to my team and my people, they're always going to look at it as in, uh, how's it going to affect me? How's it going to affect me in, 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 a, in a positive or negative way? I actually, I never knew that. It's the first I've heard that we, we focus on negative five times more than we do on the positive. That's uh, I've, I've learned that today and it does make sense. I'm certainly someone who... And I'm sure others are like me, because my wife's the same as I am. So the others listening to it will be the same as this. But you, you start with something small that's an issue. And actually, this has probably happened in the pandemic, to be honest, where the media is really, you know, the amount of negativity that's been reported. And we all kind of focus on that. But I get one little bit of bad news. And if I don't have time to process it, that I create stories in my mind where suddenly then this could happen. And if that doesn't happen, then this happens. And then this happens. And by the time you've actually got to, to grip with what the, the original issues kind of dissipated, but but in my head now I'm create I've created a a gigantuan problem that's had so many negative knock on probably five times worth of knock knock on effects because I've created this story in my mind of if this doesn't happen then all these knock on things will happen and they always seem to be negative it's very rare that I do that with the positive mindset <laughs> maybe I need to shift that around I I'd consider myself a very positive person but I do I do know that sometimes if something negative happens it's very easy to build that story and you build a narrative around it in your mind. And suddenly it becomes something that's much bigger than the original sum of its parts, if that makes Definitely. sense. Definitely. It, it's catastrophizing is the, is the term in, if you're looking at cognitive okay. therapy. And, and so what we're saying is, oh, I've just done a bad piece of work or, or that candidate in a recruitment sense, that candidate isn't going to start. Therefore, the client's going to think that I'm not very good anymore. It's a, we're in a really tough environment. Therefore, they're going to go and look at another supplier. I've lost that client forever. I've lost that client means I'm going to lose other clients. That means that therefore my business is going to fold. I'm then going to lose my house. My wife's going to leave me. My kids, it just, it continues. Do you know what I mean? You can just take, I mean, that's a massively extreme uh, scenario, but we do that the same with, with, with lots of things. I mean, I'm not saying that that's the, everyone does that. There are lots of people who can very quickly flip that and reframe it uh, and very quickly look at, oh, a traffic jam actually isn't a traffic jam. We don't, traffic jams don't exist anymore because we tend to all working from home. But if you're sat in a traffic jam, actually it's an opportunity to maybe catch up with somebody else or listen to a podcast that you've not listened to before rather than getting frustrated, annoyed um, about the situation you're in. Let's reframe it. Let's look at it from a different angle and, and look at it as, as if, okay, well, I can now go and give my mum a call because I've not spoken to her for ages and actually see how she's getting on. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. 
we also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Shaping the future of human resources together. Final questions. So let's bring it back then to the behavioural science side of things. How can we use behavioural science then to really improve our leadership capabilities? I think what, what I, I find leadership capabilities is, is understanding actually what are our, our strengths? So where are, we, where are we coming from in terms of what are, we, what are we great at? But I think that one of the things, particularly from a, a learning and development perspective, is that in the, the training that we're doing, I think what, what are the skills that are required moving forward? What are the skills that we need to, to, to survive but also thrive in this now, hopefully post-pandemic phase? And I think that those soft skills are where it's at. In, in that now, leader, leadership is about engaging, communicating, uh, supporting, making uh, connections with other people and being resilient, being able to collaborate. Those, those, those key skills are now going to really come to the fore. And I think what we know from the from neuroscience, psychology, behavioral science, we can start putting some some proper processes into place of how we can develop that and 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 build on those on those skills. Because I think the IQ talent around IQ and intelligence, of course, we would love to have intelligent human beings, but ultimately that's only a very small part of the, the puzzle now. And I think talk about EI, emotional intelligence has been a, a soft skill. Those are the things that make a leader the best leader they can possibly be. Everyone wants a, a leader who's competent. Everyone wants a leader who is intelligent, but really people want a leader who, who listens, who understands, who has, shows empathy, who is resilient themselves under stressful times, who can communicate their message in the right way, who can build great teams and collaborate with great teams. Um, can manage conflict when it arises at the, at the time as well. So by, for me, by using the, the neuroscience, you can just understand what's going on in the brain and, and other people's brains to be able to then maybe, maybe hit that mark where you, we, we haven't before. You've definitely described what I would term as being a, an ideal leader in that in that summary. But you talked a lot about resilience. I think you mentioned it a couple of times um, you know, as being a real core skill and, and something that's very very important um, with with within the leadership framework. So it's obviously I, I want to stay on that resilient subject just for a moment because for me personally, I know for many people listening to this podcast, that, that COVID nineteen the coronavirus has had a real impact on everybody, particularly in relationship to resilience. So how have you seen it impact uh, the, the, in relation to the coronavirus? How have you seen it really impact on leadership resilience from an expert point of view? Mm. So I, um, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll talk from a personal perspective. I think without knowing um, what I know about resilience, and I think, let's start off, resilience is just a word. What Do, do people understand what a resilient person looks like? What are the behaviours of a resilient person? And resilience is, too often for me, it's talked about bouncing back bouncing back to the state that they were before well actually that isn't necessarily resilience as i see it resilience is is not just bouncing back but learning and growing from that experience and learning and using that experience to to be better within 
uh, either that same situation or are using it again in the future. So let's not just use it about bouncing back, let's move forward. And then I think the other factor is that resilience isn't isn't just about going to the gym as a as a blow off to be able to to use exercise i'm resilient because i i exercise resilient is made up of and we use a um a, a grounded psychological model that's valid and reliable that actually measures resilience and there are co- core components in that which is around um your meaning and your purpose your your mindset are you are you an optimist or a pessimist do you have supportive relationships do you, how do you um, problem solve? What is your emotional regulation, emotional intelligence strategies, and what are your physiological practices? So whether that's exercise, meditation, mindfulness. So when I talk about resilience and what, what we, and in, in our workshops and the training that we do, we really break it down into a clear plan of where this person is in terms of their strengths when it comes to resilience, but also where are the development areas? What can we do to in, improve? Because I think you and I had the conversation uh, last week, if you go to the gym consistently or you use exercise as your only outlet to be able to to be resilient in times of, of stress, what happens if you pull a muscle, break a leg, hurt yourself, injure yourself, and you can't do that exercise moving forward? That's going, going to make you even less resilient because you're relying on just one um, one leg or one part of what of, a, of what I see as a much bigger model or much bigger factor. So, I think resilience is the the long-term long-term impact of someone being resilient means that they're going to come to work and if they have a bad day that isn't going to then affect their relationships their productivity the long term they will look at it reframe it change it do whatever they need to do within their resilient model and then come back the next day ready to go again so i think that the resilience right now is a huge huge um asset to have if you know how to be resilient and um yeah it's i mean it's, I, I love the top I, I love the concept and the, the different components that make up resilience because it's uh it, it's needed right now gosh yeah sure no, well, i de- i definitely agree it's definitely needed right now and it's going to be needed going forward as we start to slowly return to work and hopefully return to work obviously going to be a lot of people that are going to be struggling as a result of this pandemic as well you mentioned that the physiological side um, of things a little bit in that response as well. I wonder if there are any, um, I guess, short-term fixes. If I if I need to gain some, uh, I say maybe I'm using resilience then in the wrong context here, but I need a little bit more strength. I need a little bit more resilience for a particular meeting that's coming up. I'm I, maybe it's a, I'm panicked about a conversation I've got to, or a meeting, and I want to I want to give myself the best opportunity to perform well. Um, I, I've read some studies around things like glucose having an effect and, and you know, you mentioned breathing already. Are there any tips you could give the listeners about, you know, how we can really help prepare ourselves for something that might be giving us some anxiety? Yeah. Um, so the ang- the anxiety, uh, where's it coming from? What's what's the anxiety? Uh, there's a, a technique that I use, um, which is, again, is based in behavioral coaching therapy, which is called the ABC. I'm not going to go into that now, but I think if people want to go away and have a look at the ABC model in terms of how do we tackle some of our, our negative thoughts, and it's about actually it's not the events that make us anxious, it's our thoughts that make us anxious. So I would advise people, we aren't we'll probably out of time to go into it now to go and have a look at that. But one of the things that I would say is... I'll try and find a link and put it in the episode notes for those yeah, interested. Do. Yeah, do. Um, but it's something that we do cover in our in our um, courses as well because it's a massive, powerful tool. But actually, 
what we're seeing right now is people are bouncing from one one Zoom call or one Zoom meeting to another. And we do the same in our organization as well. We're bouncing around from one place to the next. And, and what the brain cannot do is, first of all, we're not great at multitasking. We know that. We're switched tasks. So we tend to go from one task to another task. We can't really compute and, and manage two different things at the same time. Which the brain is just bouncing between the two separate entities. And therefore, what we need to do is when we have had that uh, meeting, when we've had that, that session, have we gathered the information, logged it, collated it, notes wherever they are, and put it to one side and leave that to one side. Then give, you, give yourself some space, a space to be able to either think of something else, breathe, go for a walk, get some water, hydrate, whatever it may be. But I think that the, the anxiety, the stress comes from overload. With that cognitive overload, be that um, competing commitments, be that challenges of, of um, guilt around not spending enough time with my kids or whatever it may be. There's lots of stuff that's going on there. But I think that we've got to give ourselves, break it down into components of this is this meeting. And it's very hard because things bleed into each other. But I think if we're very clear, and particularly as a, as a coach as well, if I'm going from session to session to session, you're giving yourself no time to recuperate and recover from whatever you're putting yourself through in that. And the brain depletes super quickly, particularly if you're having to think hard about something that's quite complicated and quite challenging, or it's a, a, a challenging conversation with a, a colleague or with, a, with one of your team members. So we need to understand that the brain is like a battery. It does absolutely deplete, particularly that, that more logical and thinking part of the brain. So how are we going to boost that? I wouldn't advise the caffeine. I wouldn't advise the going and 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 getting a, a Mars bar. Sugar hits great for a little bit, but let's think more about the, the the holistic well-being route of maybe some nuts or a bit of fruit or something that's going to give you a more balanced release of, of sugar, glucose into the system. But my my advice is very much right now, if I'm not running from a Zoom call to uh to to doing a coaching session to checking if the kids are doing their, their homework or whatever it may be. You just then get sucked into this tra this constant whirlwind of of task and completing stuff. Try and give yourself that little bit of space, and even if it's just sat for a minute, two minutes, at least you're then gathering your thoughts to be able to put it to one side, come back to it later on, and then and then give yourself your full attention because attention is limited as it is right now. And if attention is isn't, if we can't focus on that individual or that task, then we're not going to complete it to the best of our ability. Sure, sure. Although you have just described exactly what I do, uh, which is grab a coffee and a Mars bar. And you know what? A Mars bar is exactly what I have. My mum told me years ago, before every exam, have a Mars bar. I don't know why. It's just stuck with me. So I always do. If I'm struggling, you, you literally just described exactly the course I do take, which isn't food. I grab a coffee. I grab a Mars bar. I, I take that time to eat it to get to kind of take the breathing space I need. And then I go in. But maybe I'll try and readjust that to something slightly more healthy. Um, but I know, I know, is there more science you give us regarding how glucose affects the, the, the brain and how that how that works and how that can support us, albeit probably from a better source than, the, than I'm getting it from at the moment? So, again, I'm not a, a sort of a, a nutritional uh, specialist, but I think what we what we know is that the brain is so energy hungry. That it and it saps the. It's it's when we come to the end of the day and we think I'm not really done anything to, today. Or I'm not. 
the exercise tiredness from an exercise perspective and fatigue from being out in the garden or doing some sort of physical uh, work is so completely different to that um that mental fatigue that cognitive fatigue that that we have and we know that from headaches and from uh from the the, the challenges that we can't sleep because our minds can constantly worrying but i think that the glucose isn't is to is to keep the brain topped up to the to the to the right level to make sure that because again if we then have glucose spikes then we're or we have caffeine spikes again we may feel like we're on fire but actually we may be talking way too quickly we may be not being able to actually focus our attention properly so i think there are experts out there who can tell you much more about how glucose affects the brain but what I, what we do know is when we're depleted we haven't we skipped lunch we've skipped drinking any water during the day we've not maybe um had a, a stretch or a rest or a break from what we're doing we know that the brain then is in is in the red lines on the on the battery zone uh, and we're not going to perform as well sure sure no i think that's fair i think that's fair so let's bring it back then to healthy workplace relationships i still want to leave it on on you know talking about brain i find it fascinating so how can how can healthy working relationships stimulate and motivate our brains you know why should we really be focused on improving the healthy workspace to help with things like motivation and what what can we do to try and achieve that relationships um i think again richard watkins talked about we've lived in and survived in groups forever so we need groups to uh to to allow our continued success but then we also want our own individual perspective in that group so we need groups to survive and if we're not part of that group we know that the brain uh, feels social exclusion that social pain uh, in the very similar part as we feel physical pain so if you're punching the arm or you hurt yourself the pain receptors are not in a dissimilar region to them being not invited to that party or not invited to that meeting or not invited to uh, take part in in a in a project so i think first and foremost we are we're social animals and we react very keenly to our our social interactions and our social environments and and that's what something that i would focus on and and think about if you're a leader is that we need we, people want to be part of a group they need they get their energy from a from a group and that there are certain things that affect us whether it's fairness whether it's certainty whether it is um whether it might be autonomy there's lots of things that may affect actually do i feel part of that group and connections is where it's at but then on the other hand we've got to realize that people are individuals and they want to be on their own and they want to be treated as an individual as well um so it's really it's a really key uh, skill to be able to balance bringing people together and understanding what, what makes groups work, but on the other side, looking at what individuals require as a, on an individual basis. And I, I mean, we, we work with, um, with teams regularly, and I think that the key factor when we're looking at psychological safety, which I'm sure is a term you've heard of a lot, allowing people to feel that they can communicate and voice their opinions, their thoughts, without being cut out of the group or that they're not they're not going to be laughed at or seen as being uh, it's a silly idea right now we need everyone's input we need as much cognitive diversity we need as much input as possible to help us see the end to the answers to the problems that are being faced right now um and so being very clear on on and creating an environment a psychologically safe environment where my team my people can say what they want to say is hugely hugely important but again 
that is a, the, the leader's role in that is to recognize their own um, challenges to say, actually, do I maybe jump in and want to just lead the way? Do I want to drive the agenda, the strategy, the goals? I want to drive every conversation or do I actually need to zip my mouth for a bit, sit back and listen to the input from the people that are there? They'll then say, well, it takes too long. It takes too long to get people to, to make their, take their input and, and listen to everyone's voice. But then you're missing the point that everyone's voice needs to be heard to be able to, 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 to have that engagement and to have that involvement in where that team or that organisation is heading. So I think it's the leaders of, of organisations and smaller teams just need to, to think about, actually, how do I interact with, with these groups? I know that, the, that, that we feel social pain. I know that we that us versus them, and and that if I'm in this this in group out group scenario, then that affects people's motivation and productivity. So it's it's tapping into all this 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 resource around neuroscience and psychology. I think really really helps leaders understand what's gonna gonna make them perf- our people perform and themselves perform. So you've articulated that brilliantly. And of course, it makes sense now to, to, to talk a little bit, I guess, about Phoenix leaders and what you do. You specialize in, in training business leaders in L&D, in human resources. Uh, you, you talk about communication and, and help with things like creativity. And obviously, we've talked a lot today about, you know, leaders of the future need to be more emotionally aware. But we know, you know, in the world today, we need to be able to communicate across different generations, different cultures and different processes, either be it remote or face to face now, which has been a big rapid change recently. And obviously, we've got different types of workforces from Gen Z to baby boomers. So as part of the Phoenix uh, leadership uh, business, uh, Simon, I wonder if you just talk to me about some of the the, the key work you've been delivering in, from an HR and L&D perspective, the kind of projects that you've been getting involved in. And if someone's listening to this and says, you know what? I love what Simon's had to say. I've, I've really enjoyed his uh, his view on on leadership and the importance neuroscience has to play in, in how we can become better leaders. And they go, I want to get in touch. You know, what kind of work are you doing at the moment? And and, and tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing with Phoenix leaders. Yeah. So I think first of all, talking to a, an L and D HR community, I think we I, I come from this angle as first of all. We need the, the the people that go through a learning journey to be able to 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 do and implement the the skills that the the tasks the intervention they need to be able to input that into their working day, and I think that what I'm we use even in in terms of structuring programs or individual workshops be those those open workshops where lots of people come together or that they're directed just to an organisation. That, that we use a neuroscience model of learning and how the brain learns so that it's it's it, now I'm struggling with uh, with organizations learning providers who are who are giving um, workshops a full over a full day nine to five on online in a virtual environment the brain cannot handle human beings cannot handle that sort of um, information overload or information transfer and so Therefore, if, if individuals are going to these courses and therefore not uh, the brain's fizzled out after 45 minutes, actually, what's the rest of that time? What, what's being spent? Uh, what are they actually doing? So therefore, the point of going to that course is, well, we're not going to, I'm not remembered half of it. I'm not going to use it. So we very much set out and, and set up our courses, our programs to make sure that the learner is at the heart of what, what we do. But we also make sure that the learning sticks and that, we 
build attention engagement at the start and that the, the event itself isn't the the superstar or the hero of this the event is is something where we can get together and and engage with ideas and show a bit of theory but a lot of practice but that's only part of the journey there's there's we've got to make sure that we're getting the buy-in from the individual and therefore our coaching sessions work afterwards um, to enhance that and embed that learning and why getting when we're doing leadership development programs getting organizations and line managers involved in the 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 person the learner going on this journey so that we're again getting some sort of social conformity making sure that everyone's bought into it because too often people go to a learning event and what's the, the research shows it probably uh, 15% take that information and go and run with it and, and use it. Probably 70% go to an event, use the information for a bit and then go backslide into where they were. And 15% just don't engage with it at all. And that's a massive amount of, that's a huge amount of investment that maybe isn't that. So we try and make sure that we really use the neuroscience to understand how does the adult brain learn, make sure that every, the, the information, the content is designed around, the learner and that it's uh, that it sticks and so again with grabbing the attention setting the contest making sure that the learner understands what they're going to get from this and why it's going to work the event itself follow up in terms of information assignments coaching whatever it looks like and and then also buy-in from the organization to make sure that these skills are being consistently used i think is vital because What's the, the return on investment? Budgets uh, are tight and, and, are, and, are, and are going to be, uh, particularly within learning development, at times that can sometimes be the first thing to go in, the, in this current climate. I don't think it should be. I think it should be boosted and, and bolstered even further. But if as an, an external supplier, as a training provider, we've got to show return on investment and, and added value. And so I think that um, gone are the days, I'd be interested to take people's thoughts and if they want to gain touch and, and have a chat about this gone are the days of these five-day programs back to back i'm not sure if they if they actually do what they say they're going to do i'm not sure that a two-day course back to back actually people are going to remember where it's at i don't think there's enough space in between necessarily or how do we how can we space these interventions to make sure that the learning does stick because we know that sleep really helps so having a break in between a piece of information allows people to. So we, we work with individuals uh, who want to come in and, and expand their knowledge. We work with organizations, with a team of people who want, let's talk about resilience, let's talk about conflict management. And then we do full leadership programs where we have a number of spread over maybe six months, eight months, nine months, 12 months to be able to take a, a, a group of people through a, a journey. Um, it'd be that emerging leaders right the way through to expert leaders amazing fantastic and i think what's really lovely as well is of course you're delivering that very much from an l and d and hr background in this sector as well so you've got a real knowledge of of you know of the market itself and the people that you're dealing with which i think is really really important to have that have that ex- experience to give you give you that little bit of an edge if you like and funnily enough to bring it full circle i actually read a recent article that you wrote and it was back in february 2020 that was published in hr review magazine which was all about achieving a well-rounded employee well-being strategy um and i just want to i guess finish really with it's such a hot topic at the minute within the hr communities of how can we develop how can we achieve a more well-rounded 
employee strategy. So without giving the whole article away, because I will put a link in the episode notes so people can find it themselves, uh, along with your contact information, which you mentioned in your last answer, to, if people want to reach out to yourself or Phoenix uh, leaders, they can do so. But I wonder if you could just finish with a, a couple of uh, tips um, to the HR professionals listening to this about how they could go about achieving a more well-rounded employee strategy. So this, uh, well, this is an employee well-being strategy. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. So I think... Um, the key factor is we need to get the the top team involved. That's the first thing. Uh, I, I think that uh, we, for for a lot of um, for the, the things that have happened in this pandemic, a lot of good that will come out of it is around mental health, mental well-being, and well-being of people in general. And I really hope that this momentum continues to to show how mental health, well-being affects the bottom line and productivity. But I think the first starting point is having a very well-defined, structured program, but is very much um, bought in by the stakeholders and a commu- is communicated by the, the senior stakeholders in the organisation. Because without that, it, it, can, it can feel a little empty. Um, and that's the same for any intervention or anything. But I think that we've got people at the senior, part, the senior level of the organisation living this and and talking about it and communicating i think is the is the first bit but i also think that we need to look at in the round so it's not just mental health and let's not just focus on mental health but let's look let's focus on well-being as a whole so whether it's that's around the the the, the diet the, the 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 actual environment that we're working in what does that look like now in terms of people working from home how do people how do we make sure that people working from home to Three days a week. That looks like that might be the norm moving forward. Um, how do we how do we make sure that they um, were maintaining and managing and understanding from a holistic perspective how they how they're getting on in terms of well being. But again, it goes back to the managers. It goes back to the managers really knowing your people and understanding actually are, the, are those lead those managers those people who they report to are they clear on what well being looks like for themselves and then for the team? Because I always talk around putting your own mask on first. So if you're going to lead a, a group of people and let's talk about you're on an airplane, first thing you do when the, the mask drop down, you're told put yours on first before you put it on anybody else, whether it's your kids. And that's the same with leadership. If you've got to be in control of the knowledge, the information to be able to look after you before you can then go and start engaging and helping others. I think you've, you've, uh, you've put that brilliantly. I think that's a great way to, to finish as well. It's been a, a real educational journey through through neuroscience and, and through uh, leadership qualities. And thank you so much for joining me today, Simon Ashton, Head of Learning and Development at Phoenix Leaders. Of course, if you want to find out more, I will put links in the episode notes or you can go to phoenixleaders.co.uk for more information as well. Again, that link will also be in the episode notes. Of course, if you are interested in finding an expert HR or L&D professional for your business and you want to work with a recruitment expert that isn't Simon, so his background is also in search, but he's come out of that now, then please do give myself a call, Nick Day at JGA Recruitment on 01727 800 377, or you can email me at nick at jgarecruitment.com. I should ask you, Simon, actually, before I lose you, you obviously do have a background in search. What is it that that, uh, that took you away from the world of recruitment? I really enjoy my time in, in recruitment, but I think that my this thirst for knowledge to go and find out again why why do human beings do what they do i wanted to get to the is there a root cause is there a thing and what i found there isn't one root cause so i've I've really opened up pandora's box in my own head but actually um recruitment was a really great way of engaging with lots of amazing people but i um 
and and actually I have lots of uh, ex-colleagues and friends still in the recruitment sector and I wish them well right now which can be a quite a tough time but I um I was yeah it's that human behavior uh, factor that really drove me to go and go and search out what else what else is out there um I've got to say is that I I, I love my uh, my my days I love speaking to to people like-minded people and uh, and thanks thanks Nick thanks for taking the time to speak to me today I really appreciated it absolute pleasure I think uh, it was a good move for you because I've really enjoyed the call you're clearly incredibly passionate about the subject I think it's been a, a really really a great great episode today and I hope everyone of my listeners has enjoyed the content you've given so thank you ever so much again for joining me today my name is Nick Day of course this is the HR L&D podcast and I look forward to bringing you the next guest again in a couple of weeks but if you have a moment today please do take the time to review and subscribe to this podcast and please share it as much as you can with any of your HR L&D colleagues to get the message out there and i look forward to speaking to you all again real soon take care of yourselves and each other many thanks thank you so much for tuning into the hr lnd podcast with your host nick day ceo of jga recruitment specialist hr recruiters if you need any help with the current hr or lnd vacancy then please get in touch with nick and his team all contact details can be found in the episode notes In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.